0: This is The Mission. My name is Daniel James, uh, but it's great to be here and great to be with you this evening. I'm broadcasting from Radio City, the much, much famed Radio City Docklands, uh, which of course is on the Wurundjeri country of the Kulin Nations. And I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and anyone else that are a mob that might be listening this evening. And I remind us all that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I've uh, got a good uh, show coming up this evening. Um got two guests on, as is per usual. Um, I don't have uh, much of a spiel for us to uh, go on with at the top of the show because all is well in the world, isn't it? So there's nothing to talk about. I am, of course, being facetious. Um, but first up, um, in, a, in a few minutes, we'll be joined by uh, June Reamer, who is the deputy CEO of the First People's Disability Network, Um there is a royal commission into dis- a disability royal commission happening at the moment, and um, of course, they meet the uh, First Peoples Disability Network is to look after how uh, these issues impact a mob around the country and people with disabilities. There was a report that came out um, a couple of weeks ago, um, and a submission made by the First Peoples Disability Network to the royal commission that basically highlighted that the substandard services that First Nations people are uh, Receiving as um, a part of the NDIS in remote and rural communities. So we'll speak to June about that and more. Um, there's so much to unpack there, but um, it really goes to the heart of this show where we try and speak to people that are at the at the um, on the front line of some of these issues that affect our mob and we hope to amplify those voices. That's what the mission is all about. And in the second half of the show we'll speak to uh, author, filmmaker, um, activist. Uh, Victor Stephenson. Now, you may remember that last week, the State of the environment report was released, and it painted a very, very dark and very, very grim picture of what's happening to the environment here in Australia and what's happening to some of our most precious and um, priceless species. Uh, Victor is someone who is well known to be highly regarded in the area of uh, cultural burns and he has some ideas and some solutions as to how through cultural burns we can increase the biodiversity of our environment and hope, hopefully address some of the key issues that were stated in that environment report last year, which made for very, very grim reading. Um, now, a few weeks ago, the Disability Royal Commission heard how First Nations people in remote and regional areas frequently miss out on the disability services that that they are entitled to due to an absence of support and knowledge, while others are afraid to ask for help out of fear their children will be removed. Uh, The First People's Disability Network uh, has has told the Royal Commission that the National Disability Insurance Scheme is failing first people with disability living in remote communities. So to tell us more about that, we are joined by June Rehmer, who is a proud Dungudi woman and deputy CEO of the FPDN. Uh, June was recently honoured for her life's work dedicated to creating systemic change to improve the lives of first peoples with disability. As this year's winner of the 2021 New South Wales Aboriginal Woman of the Year Award, she's worked tirelessly in the field for 40 years and is a strong, a, as strong an advocate today as has ever been. And uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have her on the show now. June, welcome to the mission.
1: Thank you very much.
0: A nice introduction. <laughs> I do, I only save nice introductions for nice people, June. So um, uh, Thank you. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what we do. You deserve it. So that's, there, you, there you go. You get a nice introduction. <laughs> um, look, perhaps to start us off, um, the, the, the Disability Royal Commission has been going for a while now. <clears throat> Maybe just to fill in um, the the audience, tell us about the scope and uh, breadth of the of the Royal Commission, so we can get our heads around what it's tasked with doing and and where it's headed.
1: Yeah, so thanks very much. So um, the Disability Royal Commission came about from um, the disability peaks across Australia, which is when we Disability Australia, the people with Disability Australia, and ourselves as peoples and. Children with Disability Australia. So what we saw for many years in regards to, you know, people living with disability, the service sector didn't really understand, you know, how to work appropriately with these communities. And, you know, we've heard some quite devastating stories, Anne-Marie in South Australia, what happened with her in the service system. So, you know, they asked and, and advocated for a Royal Commission to look into neglect, violence and abuse with all people with disability in various settings. So um, the Royal Commission came up with... They would look at the education system, the justice system, the out-of-home care system, NDIS... I've got a couple of others, but, you know, look at quite a few different things around where the intersection of people living with disability and, um, you know, what the repercussions around, you know, their access or, you know, people understanding, you know, the different types of disability and how that impacts them having a good life or, as we all want, you know, a really good standard of living. And what we saw, you know, particularly for First Nations people, what we have to remember that, you know, we still have a long way to go in Australia. So, you know, there's a lot of overarching racism, you know, particularly within the justice system. But more importantly, you know, for a lot of our communities, there's undiagnosed disability. Mm. So, you know, in regards to, you know, disability, you know, there obviously many differences, you know, with the disability community. But we, you know, for First Nations people, First and foremost, you know, there's the underlying um, systemic issues of, you know, poverty and disadvantage. And the further you move out from um, metropolitan regions, what happens, you know, there's less likelihood of of you having, you know, access to services, whether that's transport, medical services, you know, appropriate education services or early intervention as in allied health. And then the further you get, as we know, Australia is a big country, very yeah. remote. Access to any service, let alone adequate housing or or um, allied health professionals supporting you or equipment needs in regards to um, you know lifters or wheelchairs or any of those needs you might have in your life, just doesn't happen. And then there's other underlying elements, you know, that we would cause systemic issues in regards to not acknowledging, you know, how people live in their communities, particularly on country and cultural implications. So what we heard up at the Alice Springs hearing, which was around the NDIS, we had, you know, particularly mothers very fearful of bringing their child forward with a disability because, Nine times out of ten, they would be removed off-country, placed in a larger um, residential um, setting or, you know, where there's a larger town and there's more services available. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they would get some of their disability needs met because there's service availability, but then they lost culture and language. And we heard from some mothers that they completely lost contact with the child altogether because it comes under guardianship or out-of-home care, foster care, you know, um, facilities. So, you and know, that, we need to ask ourselves, if, you know, in the 21st century, is that is that really good? You know, that, you know, people are fearful of having their child removed, you know, when all they've asked for is help?
0: I mean, it's got to be the greatest fear of, um, of any parent the fact that um, you, you go out to, to, to ask for help and 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 there's the possibility of, of losing your child we know how deeply that runs in a trauma sense through through our mob and through our communities um, the NDIs, yeah. NDIS promised um, a lot when it was launched and the, there's still you know you know hope that it can address some of these more complex situations and complex needs what needs to happen for the NDIS to reach some of our most remote and therefore vulnerable people?
1: Yeah, so first and foremost, we are First People, we advocated for the NDIS. Mm. We thought it was going to be a really good thing, and, and it wasn't meant to be also solely diagnostic-based. Diagnostic so, you know, it was about how can you, you know, be supported to live at home or live with family or live on country, or live in any jurisdiction, and be supported to get a better education, be employed, or, you know, you um, you know, ha- ha- um, you know, just have access to normal community needs that everyone has. So what happened evolved along the way that the NDIS became very structured and diagnosed-based, and we saw, you know, I think in you know, the it moving from you know Canberra down to Geelong where we lost a big, big section of the public service that may have understood, you know, policies a, around disability. Just so just was, on that, you know, June, I've uh, always,
0: I've always thought that it's really important if you're going to have um, bureaucracies established, which the NDIS and NDIA are the massive bureaucracies, then it's really important to have those. Bureaucracy is centred around decision-makers. And, and I know the reasons why that infrastructure was moved to, to Geelong, but it it took it also took it out of the heart of power. And so the the chance to reform, it seems to be hindered a little bit by, by that. What, what do you think yeah, about that? that's
1: what I was going to say. Look, so we lost a lot of corporate knowledge too
0: yeah. in
2: that move. So
1: that was, you know, that's only part of it. But what we saw over that time that it it started to be rationed, rationed out. So, lives are not rationed. If, you know, you have a profound disability or you live in a very remote community, you're not asking, you know, for over and above. It's what you actually need to Mm. participate in society. So, when we talk about corporate knowledge being lost in that transition, we, what we started to see, the NDIS started to become more a focus around the medical model where we we talk more at FPDN about the social model, the human rights model, where it's society that creates the barriers. So then we saw the NDIS was creating those barriers for, to, to, you know, community to have, you know, a, an appropriate life, to lead the life that, you know, to the best of their expectations. And then what we saw lost along the way too was, um, you know, really not understanding culture and language and the importance of, you know, traditional um, uh, cultures and the way they live out on communities. So what we heard first and foremost, you know, at that hearing up in Alice Springs for that whole week, you know, whether it was from the Torres Straits or the Pilbara or you know any you know jurisdiction, you know remotely across Australia was the inability to be flexible, the inability yeah. to actually listen to the community. So if you're not listening, how can you hear? And that's what we heard over and over again that you know they really weren't listening to how people led their lives or listening to you know particularly traditional cultures where, There may be more than one person that is part of that person's life. You know, there may be carers, many carers, or, you know, traditionally a few mothers and fathers and uncles that all play a part in that person's life. So what we heard again, too, was, you know, the NDIS is about the individual. But for First Nations and Torres Strait Islander communities, we don't come as an individual. We come as a family unit, a community unit, and all of those who are a part of that, you know, individual's life, living with disability, play strong parts in their life and need to be supported. So the bottom line was is, you know, one size does not fit all, and that's what happened with the NDIS. You know, when they they started mitigating services, they, you know, put everyone in the same box and the same labelling, you know, all cerebral palsy looks like this or all autism looks like this, which we don't, you know, and then you add, if you don't have that underlying cultural knowledge about how that person lives, how can you pro- provide an adequate
0: service or support? There's 25 past seven Sorry. listening to the missionary. No, you're all good. You're all good, June. Uh, well, this, you're listening to the mission on 102.7 3RRRFM, I may be listening to it on the National Indigenous Radio Service. Uh, I'm speaking with June Rema, who is the Deputy CEO of the First Peoples Disability Network. We're talking about basically how the NDIS is failing people in rural and remote communities by not, I guess, um, uh, tailoring their services in a cultural or needs-based the way, the way they should. Uh, How's the NDIS um, uh, impacting people in less remote areas, um, in in urban and and regional centres? Uh, is is the same are the same kind of issues happening, June?
1: Yeah, I, I believe so. It, it's very hit and miss, you know. Like we're not saying everyone's not, you know, getting some quality of life through, you know, a reasonable package of services through the the agency, but. It's always very individual and, you know, who your caseworker is or who your support worker is. So, you know, there's no consistency around it. And we still don't hear a lot of cultural um, supports put into people's plans. So Mm -hmm. we're still working, you know, the generic plan that, yes, you're going to have this amount of transport or personal care or, you know, IT or maybe equipment but there's no cultural input into that, and you know, and and people are not heard for as a lot of people. You know, they just want you know simple things in their life, but they want to be able to participate in community. It's first and foremost about health and wellbeing to be able to get back out on country or go to particular events, and so that rational rationalization of planning and supports and funding really impacts. So even in urban settings, we hear a lot of people just move away from the scheme um, even before they've got in there because of the owner's paperwork and, you know, trying to understand, navigate a system that wasn't designed for them. So, you know, what we see most of the time, unless you've got a really good support worker or advocate who can navigate something that... You know, endless bits of paperwork and and you know, repeating yourself over and over again. So it's again hit and
0: miss. And it shouldn't, so, it shouldn't you know, require. And it shouldn't require a, a middle person to nega- navigate a system. I mean, you, then you're creating another layer of bureaucracy and another right. relationship that needs to be built just to get access to what are fundamentally human rights. And it just um, adds to the complexity of it all.
1: And that's what we've said at First Peoples all along. Like, you know, these agencies or these planners, these workers need to actually understand the principles of the CRPD, the rights of a person with a disability, but also, more importantly, the UN DRIP, which is the rights of Indigenous people. So, you know, it's okay about, you know, doing some training around you know, cultural business, but they also don't really understand disability rights. And it you has
0: know, it has the have... opportunity to also um, uh, lead to a level of exploitation with some clients as well, doesn't it?
1: Oh, definitely, particularly, particularly those that, you know, may be vulnerable that live on their own or, you know, mm. have acquired very or intellectual disabilities. And if you're not understanding the paperwork, and we hear it, I hear it daily, weekly, you know, that the exploitation of, you know, vulnerable groups around... um, I mean, it wasn't... last When I was up in Alice Springs, I I went out over to Purple House to do some other consultations, and, you know, people had never... One person had come out a year ago, signed them up for a package, they, didn't know, they couldn't read because of language barriers. So they didn't know what they were actually getting. They didn't know where their money was being spent. But monthly, they got an invoice from the service mm. to say this amount of money spent, but they weren't receiving a service. You know, yeah, one lady it's... said to me, I've been trying to get a bed out in community for six months now. Do I need to get my son to bring his bike in and we take it out on the bike?
0: It's, such, um, it's such a worry. It's, it's, I know. It's... And,
1: and, and, and hopefully it will improve. I must say, in all honesty, the agency have come back to First Peoples for the first time in many years and want to sit down and have real conversation about how they what they're calling a refresh mm-hmm. of the program. And, you know, so, you know, we and... have hope... If, they really want to listen, Bob. What we said, we wanted not only, you know, those that are working alongside us with this group from the agency, but we want the higher echelons to sit in the room with us too.
0: Well, I mean, I think and, that's you know, part of what the Royal Commission... Then, that's that's hopefully what the Royal Commission will address. What, what are you hoping that comes out of the Royal Commission, June?
1: Well, you know, like all these recommendations that it has to be... You need to listen to people with disability. You need to listen to families. You need to understand culture and what it means in many different jurisdictions. You you need to, you know, improve the paperwork to, you know, it needs to be in language or, you know, hire appropriate interpreters. You know, for many people, English may be a third or fourth language. You need to understand that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people you know, at different cultures and live different lives. And, you know, what what may be available on the mainland is not available, you know, on the island. So how can we look at supports differently? You know, we heard from one poor lady up from Group Island that um, had moved to Darwin to get better supports and was in a house on her own, but her husband wasn't allowed to stay there and visit. So he'd come and visit but he wasn't allowed to stay over, so I had to go and sleep out in the long grass. It's just
0: unacceptable. You
1: know, I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's
0: ridiculous. Totally you know, unacceptable.
1: Get... So she was at the stage where she wanted to give up a plan and just go home and live on the island again with her children and her husband. Because, you know, she might have, you know, her disability supports met, but her happiness and her well being and her
0: cultural needs won't be met. Well, this is why it's so important that we have people like you, June, that um, have been involved in this area for such a long time. And I'm glad to hear that you still have a sense of hope about what can be done in this space to make sure that people get their basic uh, human rights, Um, especially in terms of implementing the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, um, which is something that uh, desperately needs to uh, continue and, and, and to happen um thank you so much for coming on on the show um we, we spoke thank to uh Dam- we spoke to Damien Griffiths um I think it was last year yes. um so he was deadly you're yes. just as deadly it's not a competition but we'll have um both of you back on the show <laughs> okay. sometime because it's so important yeah, thank well, you so much for coming yeah. on and,
1: and we have a really good team too across fpdna and, and we're here, all here for the right reasons
0: you know no doubt we're not here for
1: so thank you very much I appreciate it.
0: No worries. Thank you so much, Gene. Triple R. To our second guest this evening, the State of the Environment Report 2022 released last week found all areas of the nation are in poor and deteriorating state as a result of increasing pressures from climate change, habitat loss, invasive species, pollution and resource extraction. Uh, Just as one example, since 2016... 202 animal and plant species have been listed as threatened as matters of national environmental significance following 175 being added to the list between 2011 and 2016. This happened while the rate of discovery and description of new species has slowed considerably over the last decade. There remain many more species that are unknown that are in these categories. So it is good to have our next guest on who believes that traditional Indigenous cultural burning can provide an answer to the number of horrific results as articulated in the report. The Fire Sticks Alliance leaders in cultural burning practices and the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation carbon farming experts may hold a solution through their cultural fire credits initiative. Uh, Both Indigenous-led organisations have partnered together to create a groundbreaking cultural fire credits initiative, which we'll hear about shortly, which aims to counteract the negative consequences of inefficient land management and protect biodiversity. And so our guest, Victor Stephenson, is an Indigenous writer, filmmaker, musician and consultant applying traditional knowledge, values in a contemporary context through workshops and artistic projects. He's a descendant of the Tagalai... I'll get this right for you, Victor... Tagalaka people through his mother's connections from the Gulf country of North Queensland. Much of his work over the past 27 years has been based in the arts and reviving traditional knowledge values, particularly traditional burning, and that's what we're here to speak to him about tonight. And he practices that through mentoring and leadership as well. Uh, Victor, welcome to the mission and thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me on. No worries. Uh, Was there anything in the state of the environment report that um, surprised you? Uh, No, not at all.
2: There's um, been, uh, you know, like for so many years now, the the landscape has been degrading and there's been problems across country with, you know, introduced um, wheat and grasses and Yeah, and there's um, also the the way the land's managed is nowhere near to how the land's been managed for thousands of years. And, you know, when they take people out of the landscape and, you know, stop a a system that people have had with landscapes for so long, uh, it's not, you know, within 200 years or more. You know, you can see the results. You know, the landscape is suffering. um, Before, people cared for the land and, you know, and this whole landscape has evolved for over 40,000 years with people. And when you think about that time frame, you can only come to, you know, common sense that the landscape has evolved with people. And the diversity of the country has been um, created with people. And the uh, old growth forests that were there when the first settlers came to Australia and what they saw in this country was a whole cultural landscape. That has evolved with, um, you know,
0: nature, and that is a really important thing for people to understand. And it was a, it was a it was, a it was a it was a landscape that was cultivated by by our people over thousands and thousands of years. So it may have looked wild to some of the first uh, colonials arriving here, but they are actually carefully crafted and carefully maintained landscapes, were not they?
2: That's right. It's. Uh whole identity of the landscape of, and that diversity of the landscape was, can only happen through people. And that's why when you take people out of the country, um, you know, the country turns into one big scrub. You lose the diversity. You get invasive natives, you get weeds, you get all sort of problems, and when you get interference with those systems like land clearing and wildfires and you know, and the mismanagement of those landscapes, that increases the you know, the you know the result of having this one landscape of this dedicated country and all full of Lankana or all full of one invasive native like Waddle or, you know, um, or anything else like she-oak or stuff and everywhere else, like in the country, it's got their own culprit, you know? And it's all result of people not understand the identity of country and how people have always understood the country for so long. And so when people look at landscapes now, they don't see what, um, you know, they just see bush and think it's healthy when they see a plant. But really, um, you know, there's mass extinction going on before their eyes and it's not really what they see. And that's why um, it's really important that we get programs going and get people to understand what's actually happening within our landscapes and get, you know, um, communities activated and, and, and many communities Just want to get out there and look after the country now, you know. It
0: seemed that that there was uh, a a growing awareness or a reckoning almost um, through mainstream Australia after the the terrible bushfires of a couple of years ago, which basically lit up most of the eastern seaboard of this um, continent. And that's when um, a lot of uh, fire practitioners and authorities. Uh, Began to start discussions with First Nations people and and the talk about things like uh, cultural burning. Um, What were you telling them when they first approached you? Was just basically reiterating what you told us? Well, you know, it's just been a whole
2: journey of just like um, getting this happening. It was like going back 30 years now, you know, right back to when the elders were concerned then and elders were concerned before that and um, and where that's led to now is um, it's just a stark um, evidence, you know, and what the old people expected, landscapes to, you know, get unhealthy and, you know, the problems of wildfires and the problems that we're having now in the country because we, you know, we haven't listened to that old way of managing landscapes and understanding that land and, you know, and that's... That's that's always been seen within um, the people, and you know those elders and those alarm bells have been going off long before um, mm. climate change and of today. And um, and now we're seeing that you know happening. You know, we, if we don't have our people on country and all people, and you know it just needs to um, start adjusting. That we need to put more love into landscape, and we need to put more time into the country. And we would understand that when people managed the land, it was for food and it was for making the landscape healthy. And so there was a lot of intimacy and there was a lot of um, walking with country and understanding landscapes and not just treating it like, you know, some sort of hazard and, um, you know, applying sort of techniques that are just um, not what the land remembers, you know? Yeah. Like machinery, fire breaks and, you know, and bulldozers and... All these things that are just a shock to the landscape, and people not understanding land at all, just expecting the worst when they put fire, or expecting the bad things to happen instead of expecting the positive thing. And that's where the um, the difference lies, and what needs to happen with um, educating people and creating a whole wave of new land managers and practitioners that understand this properly, and and you know and how we can support that knowledge and support that into the um, mainstream and to to make that a benefit for everybody, including the advancement of,
0: the, of you know, the First Nations as well, you know. The State of the Environment report, Victor, um, basically highlighted that the fact that um, biodiversity and it's all, all its forms is basically collapsing across the country. How does something like cultural burning help promote biodiversity?
2: Well, that's what it's all about. I mean, it's all about healthy landscapes. When you look at um, you know, how this land's been managed for so long and the state it was when the first settlers came, like you said before, you know, it was it was plentiful, you know, everything was there. There's so many fish, you know, and so much this and the country was healthy and they saw the diversity and you know, it's all there in in, in the in their books that they've written, you know. And and that tells you that that um, you know that that people were living with country and understood landscapes and and seeing that diversity. So you know it's like uh, understanding that um, what we need to do is to um, reinstate that and look at not like seeing that in the way that like the old ways in the sense of walking around like people did, but you know, but actually yeah, um, putting people back in landscapes and carefully looking after the country again and putting the efforts into cutting up um, and not just supplying fire, but removing um, certain species of plants and looking at how we had tied that to the economic side of things and how we tie that to education. And, you know, I'm we um, focusing more through our um, credits as well and, um, and the whole thing around uh, all, all the indicators of a healthy landscape then um you know we're creating those opportunities around um so much more. We're building knowledge, we're building back the health of animals, we're bringing back the native grasses, understanding um all that science involved and all that knowledge and um and and you know and how that um to other opportunities through education and builds knowledge and builds hope and and all those things and not just um uh, based
0: on fear and looking at fires the enemy, and you know, it's a totally different outlook. But You're listening to the to very w- w- wise and talented uh, Victor Stephenson, who was the lead fire practitioner of the Fire Sticks Alliance. Um, you, you've, you've combined with another agency, um, uh, Victor, to come up with a, an initiative that, that is called the Cultural Fire Credits Initiative. Um, before we let you go, can you just explain what that is and what the what the idea is behind it?
2: Well, it's just a credit that, um, that that's um, being developed by um, Aboriginal carbon fund projects, and you know, and it's, it's just something that can help with with, with some income for communities mm-hmm. and try and get a stream of income for all the work, and you know, and for all this work, you need the whole stream of income from different angles, and and that's why we're looking at so much more opportunities through healing country for communities, so that they can find those opportunities and. And look at ways that we can keep jobs happening and keep communities moving forward. And and um and so the credit's really coming that people can understand. It's about yeah the, the you know the actual indicators, which is the trees and making sure the trees are growing old, showing that after the fire you know you didn't harm the canopy. You know showing the animals coming back, showing the right like, grasses, the native grasses, and all sort of plants coming back, and showing that identity of country coming back. But also the social benefits too, you know, showing employment, showing knowledge building and knowledge sharing, and supporting that community mentorship model, and you know, and, you know, and getting investors to support, you know, what they can actually see, and and actually see the benefits. And if we're seeing the benefits on the ground, then we're dealing with the carbon, for creating a healthy landscape you know, then, you know, obviously we're dealing with the carbon and, you know, and these credits are based on some things that we can see, we can understand it, and and I just hope that, you know, it's Aboriginal-owned and non-for-profit, and hopefully that will just
0: go, you know, put more investment into the ground and to what needs to happen, you know? Yeah. Well, basically what you're doing, Victor, is trying to, to help solve a problem to add value and to empower our own people at the same time. And what can be bad... Um, about that, nothing. I would say. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Thank you so. Also, thank you, you so know, much. No, but, yeah, go on.
2: Sorry, go on. Yeah, also, um, yeah, also, someone say that it's just the efforts of all the communities involved, you know. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and all the um, non-Indigenous communities that have been supporting, and you know, all the you know the councils, and you know, and so much people out there, and so many um, agencies that just been supportive and. It's
0: all about all efforts, you know, and that's where you know, that's, and, and that's the only way it's going to work. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for um, for your efforts, uh, Victor, and we'll, we'll we'll keep in touch and get you back on the show some other time to hear how it's all going because it's um it's it's a problem, but it's exciting to to see uh, First Nations people step up and and try and help out and trying to rectify some of these issues. And you're at the forefront of that, so thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you so much for your work. Yeah, thanks so much, eh. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Well, that's it for another episode of The Mission. Uh, thank you to June Reamer and Victor Stevenson for coming on. Thank you to the team, Cam, Dave, Vaughan... Elizabeth, for uh, getting this thing to air in the first place. Uh, until next week, stay strong, stay safe, and stay listening. Ta da! Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.